Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters with Mark Inc. Ministries, and we are pleased to present another in our series of resources offering help and hope to hurting people. The topic we have for today is a very sensitive one, very complicated one, and one that I am sure is going to tug at the heartstrings of many. You may be a parent or you know of a friend who is a parent of a child who has committed suicide or one who is severely depressed and you're wondering what in the world is going on. And certainly there are many, many questions we have about suicide, especially teen suicide. And uh, Sharon, that is going to be the focus of our discussion here today. So why don't you go ahead and introduce our guests? Chuck, it is a a hard topic, depression and suicide in teens, and one that is incredibly prevalent. The need is enormous. And we are so grateful that we have Heidi Scott and Lindsay Capaferi in our studio today. Both of them bring very uh, unique uh, qualifications to the conversation. They they have experience in helping teenagers and working with teenagers. And Heidi and Lindsay, welcome. We're so glad you're here. It's great to be here. Heidi, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? My name is Heidi Scott, and I am the owner of Morningstar Counseling in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. And I have worked in this field for 25 plus years and started Morningstar about six years ago. But even before that, I've worked with kids for many years and in all different settings. But a lot of the kids that we deal with in Quarryville are like many other practices, a lot of them are depressed and many of them struggle with suicide. So this is a topic that I'm pretty familiar with. Well, when I first contacted you about partnering with Mark Inc. in producing Help and Hope Resources, that was one of the top life crises that you mentioned. I remember it was very heavy on your heart and uh, the opportunity to offer Help and Hope to parents and to teens. uh, You immediately grabbed onto that opportunity. And then you introduced me to another friend who also has a burden for teenagers. And uh, Lindsay, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Lindsay Capaferi, and I currently work as a school counselor in a high school. And I've been working with teenagers for almost 10 years now in some capacity in the world of education. Uh, This is my fourth year working as a high school counselor. And unfortunately, I've dealt with a lot of teenagers who are experiencing mental health concerns. I've assessed a lot of teenagers over the years for suicidal ideation. And I've even lost a student to suicide. So I have had a lot of experience working with this topic and look forward to sharing. How prevalent is teen suicide in your experience? What are the causes? Why do kids want to kill themselves? So there are numerous reasons why someone might consider or follow through with suicide. I think the one quick answer is a feeling of hopelessness. And I think that overseeds everything else. That a lot of times at the time, the person thinks there's no other way to end the pain. So it's a method of ending this pain that they've been feeling for some time. There are obviously a lot of chemical, environmental factors that might come into play. It may be a situation at home that is driving those feelings. It's important to mention that mental health is is a real thing. And one of the things that Heidi and I have talked a lot about is that a lot of people assume with teenagers that teens are going through phases. And that maybe this feeling that they're having is something that will pass. But we'd love to emphasize that mental health is real and a lot of times undiagnosed. 
I would agree that there's so many variations as to why. And I think in a lot of cases, we don't even really have good answers, unfortunately, if somebody is successful. Um, so even some of the statistics, you know, you have to have a big question mark over some of them. But in every case, I would say every case that I know of personally, the experience is very different. And there's just, it's hard to find one thing to pinpoint, even the common things like mental health, like Lindsay mentioned, there are some other commonalities too, but that sense of hopelessness is probably the only thing that really does cover almost all of them. And then there's some that we believe are related to impulsivity, and we can talk a little bit about that too, but we don't really know how many times when people have an impulsive tendency or seem to commit suicide impulsively, we really don't know whether or not they had thought about it prior to. So that's just an example of how the statistics are sometimes not easy to really interpret. So even as I'm listening to you share those things, what the goal of our time together is not to come up with a checklist, uh, because there is no real checklist. There are things that parents can look for. And that's one of the goals of this interview is that we want to help equip parents with children and their teenagers. And parents who are listening, I want to caution you, don't just turn this off. And, and because you look at your child and say, my child's fine. My child's healthy. Uh, no problems there. You may be right. And that's a great thing. But There also might be some warning signals that you can pick up on here, not just for your child, but for the friends of your children. And I think, Heidi, we had talked about this also, that there might be parents who are listening whose child has taken their own life. And certainly our purpose is not to lead you, parent, you, and we know you're brokenhearted and shattered. We're not trying to lead you into the past and to a place of putting guilt on you that is not yours to bear. Would you like to speak Absolutely, to that? Absolutely, yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because our goal today, I think, really is prevention, and that's going to be our emphasis. But when we're talking about suicide, you know, the aftermath of suicide is so painful, and any death has a lot of guilt associated with it, even death due to a car accident. Oddly enough, you know, we know that about death. But particularly with suicide, the loved ones that are left behind often feel very guilty, like there was something that they should have picked up on. So we do want to be very careful today in, you know, a parent out there that might be listening, I do want you to understand that it's not your fault, that this is a decision that unfortunately your loved one made and that you really need to guard against thoughts like I should have or I ought to have seen something. In some cases there are signs, in some cases there just aren't. So we do want to really be careful and protect you in that. So that's work for that individual out there to do in their own head and guard against that. So we are trying to save lives, but we are conscious of the fact that people out there, it may be too late for their loved one. It seems to me that you talked a little bit about impulsiveness, that it just kind of happens on on a whim. Is that what you're talking about? What do you, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I think I've heard the statistic, and Lindsay, maybe you can comment, but something like one in four seem to be completely impulsive, like out of nowhere where there weren't many warning signs. Then I've seen other statistics where you know, most people are giving some warning signs. So we really don't know. But there are those cases where it seems to be out of nowhere. 
I think in some of my knowledge of these situations, there's been some occasions where it seems to happen in the middle of a family conflict or an argument, potentially in anger. You know, we hear about crimes of passion, and I sometimes think there are suicides that happen as a result of just an overwhelming emotion, anger, or something like that. So, and, and we know that teens and kids can be impulsive sometimes. So I do think there's a segment of people that commit suicide that really are more impulsive in that. It, it seems to me that uh, as you were talking, I was remembering two specific examples uh, in my experience of young people who committed suicide. And in both of those cases, no one knew that anything was wrong. In fact, in the, the one case, I'm thinking of this young lady who, upper teens, early 20s maybe, she was kind of like the life of the party around the church and around friends, and everyone knew her, everyone loved her. She was a married woman, maybe some marital problems, et cetera. And next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call that she hung herself in the basement, but no one had a clue as to what was going on. And when you speak of the guilt that some of us experience, I remember when Sharon and I lost our son, Mark, in a car accident. We both, we both experienced that time when we wondered, should we have stopped him from going on that journey that night? We both felt like we should have at the moment, but we didn't. And so we wondered whether or not we could have prevented this. So that's with an accidental death, but I would imagine that it's much more intense even with a with a suicide. I, just to further comment on that, that impulsiveness, I, I think the guilt tends to be even stronger when, it, when you do believe that it was an impulsive thing, because then you think, well, were there signs that I missed? You know, if someone's currently under treatment for mental health and they harm themselves, a lot of times you think, okay, well, at least we were, we were taking steps. But in the case of an impulsive suicide, you tend to think, well, I must have missed something. And Something to note is that people who are at a higher risk for suicide, specifically teens, are or tend to be even more impulsive because they are risk takers. And teens in general are risk takers. And I think that's important to note. It does put them at a higher risk for that impulsive behavior. So as a parent, I'm thinking if I have a teenager in my home right now, I'm starting to feel a little panicked. What can I do to equip my child? You know, how do I help my child understand that they might have those feelings? And how do I keep my child from giving in to those impulsive feelings? If I talk about it, am I planting seeds? Am I planting ideas? Help me. You brought up a good question in that question about are you planting seeds? Real conversation is important and opening the door for that conversation because I think a lot of times we're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid if we say, have you considered hurting yourself? Have you committed, have you considered suicide? then parents think that they're giving them ideas. And that's not true at all. It's something that I've learned in my, my practice that I have to say those words. And if I'm concerned about a student, I have to say, have you thought about killing yourself? And it's, be, it's become common language for me, but uh, at the start, it was difficult to say. Yeah, I believe if somebody is showing some of those warning signs, then there's a lot of conversation that ought to be happening around that. And it isn't something that should just be buried and stuffed. I think parents sometimes do avoid that, along with a lot of many other important topics in our child rearing. You know, there are certain topics that tend to be taboo, but it's very important that they're followed up on and adhered to and not just ignored and brushed under the carpet. So what are those signs? What are the warning signs? 
what should a parent look for? And I know it's dangerous to answer that question because inevitably a parent is going to say, well, yeah, that's my child, that's my child, that's my child. And it may not be that their child's going to commit suicide. So how do we look for the warning signs? What are the real warning signs that, hey, we're in trouble here? In working together in pre- preparation for this, we've, we came up with so many signs, but there are, there are some clear things that, that parents can look for. Um, obviously, a change in mood, a change in behavior. Uh, and I believe in working with parents, parents know their kids better than anybody else. But at the same time, because you know them so well, it's easy to overlook things at times. An isolation, whether it's an isolation from their peers, an isolation from the family, all of a sudden not being involved in things that they were involved in before. Teens sleep a lot, but an increased amount of sleep can be a warning sign. If a teenager recently lost someone, whether it's a loss to an accident or especially a loss by suicide, they are at an increased risk. And it's what, what about a loss of a boyfriend or a girlfriend Absolutely. or a friendship? Or... Relational issues is huge because teenagers base a lot of their self-worth and a lot of their value of life on the relationships that they have with others, whether it's a friendship or a boyfriend, girlfriend or a family issue. Uh, so it's important to keep in mind relationship changes. We don't often talk about chronic pain, but that is, you know, when we talk about that hopelessness, that feeling of never being able to end pain, chronic physical pain is something to consider. And again, I bring back that topic of mental health, that mental health is a real thing. And it's hard to, you can't see mental health problems and you can't visibly see when someone is dealing with those things in his or her mind, but it's real. And so having that open conversation to see if your son or daughter is feeling those things. And lastly, I'd I'd like to comment on substance abuse, chemical concerns. Um, We know teenagers, like I mentioned, are risk takers. But when they are experimenting with those things, they're already at a higher risk because of the emotional changes that come with that chemical reaction. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's an interesting statistic is that 90% of people that commit suicide have either depression or substance abuse issues or sometimes a combination of both. So often you see that. It's difficult to differentiate risk factors from warning signs. So, you know, some of those that we listed are warning signs and some are more risk factors. Certainly a suicide note in some cases is left, but in many cases there's not a suicide note left. But unfortunately, there are times that I I know of that parents have received a suicide note and really didn't even give that its proper attention. So... It is something that should be taken very seriously and followed up on. Um, giving away possessions is also something that you see sometimes in before a suicide. You know, I think what's important to see is there's often a period of ambivalence. I've heard it estimated that suicide episode or suicidal ideation episodes are sometimes in the neighborhood of like 30 days or more. But it often is a phase that they go through and they will hopefully eventually gravitate out of that, hopefully with the help of some loved ones that are coming around them, somebody that that really cares. But there's this period of ambivalence, and sometimes that leads to something that I believe kind of is the straw that breaks the camel's back, like a breakup or something like that, or conflict in the family or something going on circumstantially. 
But I think that's often happening in this period of ambivalence, and they're ambivalent. Do I want to end my life, or you know, is there really some little glimmer of hope somewhere? And that's where that loved one or that person in their life really can be that little glimmer of hope at a very important time. There are so many changes that are taking place in a child 12, 13, 14 years old, chemical changes, uh, biological changes, what have you. I am increasingly concerned about the problem, which I might even say is becoming epidemic, of cyberbullying and the relationships that kids have with one another on Facebook or the lack thereof on some of the social media. What role have you seen or are you concerned about that social media plays in becoming for that child that pushing them over the edge moment? Yes, I think it absolutely can be that straw that breaks the camel's back, that pushes them into a place of feeling completely hopeless and pointless, their life being pointless, which, by the way, is sort of some of the language that a parent or loved one ought to be looking for. You know, I just don't feel like my life has any meaning. Nothing would be different if I wasn't here anymore. Those kinds of comments are certainly warning signs that there's something going on, that there's a hopelessness or a worthlessness that needs to be followed up on. But Dr. Betters, I agree that there's a lot of times when that circumstance is happening at a time when maybe a child is contemplating suicide, and it really does can push a child over the edge. And you can imagine why, you know, something like cyberbullying that is so public and humiliating that I didn't have when I was a teenager and can't even relate to. So, uh, yeah, I do think that's playing a big part here. And in connection to that, it's important to note that teenagers are often searching for feedback, you know, and, and online they have learn to get this immediate feedback. So what I see often is that a student who is at this dangerous spot posts something such as, it'd be better if I wasn't here. And immediately they're receiving these comments from their peers. But my concern is when they have those feelings, if they were to post something and nobody replied right away because they're so used to that immediate response. And I've, I've seen this occur where students said, well, nobody said anything. Nobody liked my post or nobody replied to my post. So in the same manner, then they're not receiving that, that feedback in a positive way, and that has a negative reaction for them. How I, I'm thinking about a situation where a child was bullied in a chat room by a classmate, and the words were extremely hurtful and painful. Uh, the response of adults, some of the adults was severe, others was, it's, it's he's, the kid is sorry. But that doesn't seem like enough to help the child, what, what counsel would you give to, to school counselors, to teachers, when they are made aware, when a parent comes to them with, with a description of a bullying incident, maybe in a chat room or social media, what kind of response are teachers supposed to have that would be helpful? Well, no tolerance is the easy answer for me. I mean, I think the law says that as well, that it's zero tolerance. But more importantly than the law is the the ramifications on the teenager's confidence and their self-worth. You know, I, I think there's absolutely no tolerance and that it needs to be addressed immediately. And I'd like to think that the schools are taking a firm stance on that because they've realized the impact of the cyberbullying and what it's doing to teens. Oftentimes, a parent will go to the school, will go to the, the counselor, the principal, 
we'll take care of it. That's the reaction that they get. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen again, and it just gets swept under the rug. I know that that happens in just about every school that I've been a part of, where we don't want to have to mess with this. So what do you say to a parent who has done the appropriate things, who has approached the people appropriately and said, look, my kid is being bullied and this is, this is becoming devastating to her. Why wait until that child is lying on a slab somewhere in a morgue? What can a parent do when the school is not helping them overcome this? I know most schools have a policy where they can actually monitor the student's social media and they see something going on, uh, it's their responsibility to do something about it. But what do you do when they're not doing something about it? What does a well, parent There are two, two things I'd comment for that first, that it is, it's a legal matter. So police involvement is absolutely something that you have to consider. So you would say actually call the police. Absolutely. If the teacher or the, uh, the school administrators do not handle it, you're, you're suggesting that parents take the next step and call the police. So cyber harassment is against the law. Doesn't it is now in effect that it's against the law. But doesn't it mark that child? Isn't that something the parent might be concerned about is it's only going to get worse now because you've turned me in? So I can, I can see both sides. We deal with this a lot in the school as to whether discipline is going to make it better or make it worse. And I've seen it do both, unfortunately. I would comment that sometimes administrators have their hands tied in the school when it comes to the cyber world, because if it's not happening during the school day and if it's not, quote unquote, impacting the school environment, their hands are tied in what they can do. In addition, telling the parents how they've handled the situation for the other student is not ethical either. So it's a difficult situation, but I, I think drawing it back to you know, the topic of mental health and suicide, it, it certainly is a huge impact. And I do think that one of the reasons we are having so many more reported cases of teens with depression and teens with suicidal ideation is because of that influence. So really, the question for me would be, how, how would I counsel that parent to help their child? You know, that's, that's really the key part is, like you just said, there are legal ramifications and we, we might say this is the way it should be handled, but what does the parent do for their child to help their child stay focused on healthy thinking rather than going to the dark side? I think that's a really good point because I think sometimes you can get misdirected in your anger and frustration that you're kind of missing the forest or the trees, which is really your concern for your child. So I do think sometimes the school is, because they're involved, they are held too responsible to fix everything. So if I'm working with a parent and they don't feel like the school is doing what they ought to, certainly advocate for them and speak up for them, for the child, and, and ask for ramifications to happen maybe that aren't happening. But I don't know, maybe I'm a little odd in this, but I, I don't think I would also be afraid to say, hey, why don't you call the parent? You know, if you in a small town like we are from, you know, often there's some connection to the family where maybe the the perpetrator of this crime and maybe you have some connection. You can call the parents and see if you can confront them or see what they're doing directly, uh, reach out to them. So that that would be probably something that I wouldn't be afraid to suggest. But yeah, I think the point is really you're also not just trying to 
to punish the person that's responsible for it, but you're also sending a message to your child that you care enough about what was done to them that you're going to really stand up for them. And that is a powerful message to a teen that this really ought not have happened. So they're struggling with their own, you know, I'm a terrible person, everybody thinks negatively of me, and it's really important that somebody is standing up for them and fighting, you know, for against that. And then to go a step further, what is the message that you give that child, you know, to help that child think in a different way than what the bullying has printed on his or her heart? Yeah, so I think big picture when you have a child that you really believe is suicidal because they are commenting on that or you're seeing some of these warning signs that we've laid out, depression, withdrawal, isolation, and some of those things, to get them help. This is a mental health issue in many cases. So to ask, you know, who in their life could they talk to if there is a counselor or a close friend or somebody if they're not willing to talk to you then that's really important to to not be afraid to really speak up. The mental health field is not perfect. There's so many flaws in it. And I would say, you know, some of that is due to some of the issues that we have in the medical field, too. Hospitalization is not what it used to be. It used to be you were depressed seriously, you would go to the hospital for 30 days. That's not the reality of mental health today. Somebody's suicidal, they go to the hospital, and they're there to be medicated to the point where they're not saying they're suicidal anymore, and four or five days later, maybe less than that in some cases, they're out. So it's not perfect, but then that follow-up, you know, outpatient care is really probably where a lot of the help is going to be needed. So getting them help and getting them to open up is probably more important than anything. Really listen to what they're saying. What I hear from parents just across the board, not even just related to this topic, but the biggest complaint that I get from teens is, my parents aren't listening to me. And parents do a lot of talking naturally, but they're not very good at listening. So I, I think that's the biggest thing, just get them to open up and not try and preach at them, not try and talk at them. One of the things that Lindsay and I talked about in preparation for today is just that sometimes we we feel like we've got to fix it for them, and we, we have to fill in the gaps all the time when there's silence, but just to get them to open up and talk. Uh, sometimes we try and solve the problem too quickly by saying, well, you have, you have everything to live for. Look at your life. You know, everything's so good, and we're trying to shift their focus onto something positive. And sometimes that's really hurtful and isn't helpful, makes them feel more isolated, like nobody really understands where they're coming from. I think you raised such a good point. I mean, just speaking of one who knows what grief is, just someone acknowledging my grief was a gift. It helped. I was able to go on. You know, I was able to be in a group of people when someone would say, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I miss Mark, too somebody just acknowledging it, it's almost magical. And so I think rather than saying, oh, you, sh- you have so much to be thankful for, look at your f- the rest of your kids and all this other stuff, it's all true. But acknowledging the pain, I, I think that is one of the things we miss because we want to get past it quickly. We don't want that person to cry. We think we're making it worse and all those things. And yet just someone saying, I get it. I agree. What is it about us being parents? I can do this professionally much better than I can do in my <laughs> <Right>. personal life. <laughs> but you know, when my kids come to me with a problem, I want to fix it so mm-hmm. quickly because I don't mm-hmm. have my professional hat on. The right thing to do so often is just sit with them in that pain. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think suicide is that way. Parents get in this almost frustration at how can I fix this quickly? And just validating that emotion, like, yeah, I'm sure that was a really hard thing that you just had to deal with, you know, and just, Instead like you said, of acknowledging. immediately getting angry at the person and saying, I'm going to go over there to that school, I'm going to straighten things out. And the child is saying, no, don't do that. It's going to make it worse. Yeah. And just you, what you mentioned uh, brought back a memory from many years ago. I had a dear friend who was in love and she thought she was going to marry this guy. And of course he goes to college and he breaks up with her. And I'll never forget her saying her mother came into the bedroom and just sat on the bed and cried with her. As, as a teenager, that was profound to me to be thinking that, because I said, what did your mom say? She said, she didn't say anything. She just cried with me. I think we also, as humans, want to relate. And so we want to say, you know, I remember how difficult that was. And I remember being at that point. And sometimes teens are turned off by that. You know, they don't want you. And I think as we as adults feel the same way. We don't always want somebody to say, I understand. Instead, I I try to make a habit of saying, I can't imagine what that feels like. I really can't imagine what you're feeling right now. But tell me about it. Because I want to know because I love you and I care about you. And I want to know how you're feeling. So I think trying to avoid that whole phrase of I understand and I've been there because at that time they feel so alone that they can't imagine that anybody else has ever felt that way. And and another thing I think parents listening are probably saying, okay, you want me to listen to my kids, but I can't even get them to talk to me. So how do I get them to open up? And I remember uh, when Chuck and I we're raising our kids, and uh, we would ask the questions, well, okay, we need to have talk time at dinner table and say, well, how was your day? It's good. All right, well, what was your favorite subject? You know, we would have to start asking questions that were more than yes and no. Uh, tell me one good thing about today that happened. What was one bad thing that happened? And keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And frankly, I think that starts when they're really little. But if you've missed the window, it's not too late to keep that conversation going. As we think about the parent who might be listening to this, and both of you can answer this as you see fit, what are the signs? What are the, you mentioned some of them earlier, uh, some, some signs that are obvious. But what if there are no signs? What if there's something going on inside that no one can see? How do you, how do you detect that? If it's so invisible, how do you detect that this child is struggling with self-image and struggling with whether or not their life means anything and maybe even contemplating suicide? How do you dig into that? Sometimes there are subtle signs such as a drop in grades or no longer a desire to take an advanced class. So it could be something academic. And even if you aren't seeing those signs, being a questioner, like you mentioned, having those conversations, but making a habit of just asking how are you feeling? How are things going in your life? How are you, you know, and asking about their friends and about their boyfriends and girlfriends and taking that non-judgmental stance. And that's a really difficult thing because I think as a parent, we have this view of what we want for our children and what we want their lives to look like. I deal with this a lot in the high school when I have a student who all of a sudden decides, I don't want to go to college. I don't want that career. And it crushes the parent because the parent has had this dream for the child. And so the child being able to come to the parent and say, you know what, I've decided on a different career path and knowing that the parent's going to say, that's okay, let's talk about it. But a lot of cases, because we have this view of what we want for our children and it's all coming from a place of love, but having that makes 
you know, makes the child hesitant to share those things, the topic of sexuality, you know, especially in a faith-based home, you know, having those questions and having those curiosities and bringing those things up sometimes can be, the teen can hesitate to do that. So just that open conversation and those open questions, I, I can't emphasize that enough, that just talk. And, and one of, you bring up um, sexual questions and, and especially in this culture, same-sex attraction is a huge, huge issue for teenagers. And we won't get into it here in detail, but I just want to tell our listeners, go to our website because we do have resources there where we address same-sex attraction in teenagers and how parents can help navigate that minefield. Yes, I think there really is a connection there, Sharon, because it is there is an increase in prevalence of suicidal ideation and thought when you have somebody struggling with the same-sex attraction. So that is a very important topic around the issue of depression and suicide. And, you know, Heidi, uh, it keeps coming back to everything that you have said, both of you have said again and again, we must have an environment where kids are, they feel safe in sharing, even though they may be trembling and terrified to tell their parents, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, I don't know what to do with this, parents really have to prepare themselves for that moment so that their response is not one of outrage or terror, but one of, let's talk about it. Let's walk this pathway together. Lindsay kind of touched on that too, just that immediate reaction to anything, like I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or I failed my science exam anything like that, or, or I'm not going to go to college, as Lindsay mentioned, you know, those kinds of things, even though you may not be saying something outwardly directly, sometimes your body language or your clear emotional reaction or disappointment can very quickly come across to a teen. And, you know, some of those teens are really wanting more than anything to please their parents. So if they see that you have that emotional reaction, they're going to shut down. So that's a really important piece. So one thing I want to be careful of is that we don't terrorize parents into feeling as though if they don't respond exactly the right way, their child is lost forever. Um, how, how do parents uh, know the difference between a child who's just simply struggling with life and a child who may be thinking of ending his or her life? I think they learn that by questioning. Again, I, I keep coming back to that. But a, a student who is considering suicide, to, to find that out, you might find that out on your own as a parent by questioning, but you may also find out by another person in that teen's life. I make a lot of phone calls as a counselor to parents, and I'll be honest, it's probably one of the most difficult parts of my job when I have to call a parent and say, I'm concerned that your child's considering ending his life or her life. And I don't take that lightly at all as a parent myself, um, but I, I think it's important that we have that conversation right away. And as a counselor, I, I do go through the protocol of assessing the suicide risk, um, and I encourage parents to not be afraid to say, have you considered killing yourself? And it's a really difficult thing to say, especially to your own child. It's a difficult thing for me to say to a student who I don't even know as well, but it's important to ask those direct questions. The number one thing a parent should not do is brush it off. If a counselor were to call and say, you know, I think your child is considering suicide, to brush it under the rug or to not deal with it immediately, unfortunately, communicates a lack of care to the teenager. Whether you believe that it's at that level or not, 
to that student, it's at that level or to that teenager. It's right there at that level right now. And we've talked a lot about not minimizing, not minimizing the way that they're feeling at the time, not saying it's just a phase, but immediate action. And immediate action might be starting with a conversation. It may be reaching out to a professional, which I highly advise, whether that professional is someone that you're associated with at church or in the community, or if you have no ideas, ask. Ask somebody, who would I go to? Ask the school counselor for numbers, for ways to to reach out. And as Heidi mentioned, unfortunately, the mental health system is flawed and it is difficult to navigate. But you as the parent need to be that advocate. And you need to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you find the right support for your child. But number one is to, to just take action right away. Um, in addition, having a plan, having a contract with your child, which might seem like a, I don't know, like a difficult, difficult thing to, to think of, but just a, who you're going to go to. If you're having these feelings again, who are you going to talk to? What actions are you going to take? And this is a step as a counselor that I go through with a student. When a student shares with me that he or she is considering suicide, we come up with a contract. I make them tell me, who are you going to go to? And I, give, and I make them tell me three people, which the hope as a parent is that you are one of those people. Um, and most of the time that is the case. I make sure that they have the number of a hotline, a 24-hour number, which there are multiple resources that you can reach out to. And I make sure that they have other outlets, which is something that we can get into a little more deeply. But teenagers need to have other ways to relieve their stress and, and to feel better about themselves at the time. So coming up with a plan for when they feel that way again is really key. And I think it's important, too, to say, you know, if you do really feel like your child is suicidal and maybe you have had them do a contract or something because they're not at a point where they need to go to the hospital, maybe they had thought about it a month ago, but they're not there now, and you that would be an appropriate time to do something like a contract. But if you really do feel, feel that there's a possibility they're a threat to themselves to re, do, take some precautions like removing weapons from the home, um, knives, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of parents really feel like they are going to sleep in the same room to protect them during those hours of, at night. But unfortunately, most teens who commit suicide commit suicide during, you know, like two to five, I think, are the hours, that time in the afternoon when they're often home alone. So you know, there's some things that you can do. You can't do everything. Um, if they really are suicidal, they need to be hospitalized is really kind of the bottom line. You mentioned a, uh, an assessment, suicide assessment. Is this a, a written assessment? There are written assessments out there in the professional world, but a basic assessment is to find out, I often do a rating scale. On a scale of one to 10, one meaning there's no chance, 10 meaning you are 100% planning to end your life. Where are you? You know, and, and that tends to give you a gauge for what am I starting with, you know, and asking directly, do you have a plan? Because it's a hard thing to hear, but sometimes they've already thought that through. And if they have a plan and they share that that plan involves medication or lethal means and, and they have access to that, that gives you a starting point. So a lot of times the assessment for me in, in my professional world is it gives me a, a starting point and information to share with parents so that they know what next steps to take. You both have been exposed to a number of kids who have either mentioned suicide or maybe even have gone through with it. Can you relate to us an incident that maybe is fresh on your mind? 
In my case, I had a student very recently who had ended her life, and it began with a note that she had left with parents. And at that time, this student was a student who was involved in sports and had a great friend group and two-parent home, siblings. One of those cases where we would say, she's got a lot to live for, you know? And the time of the note that she had left, there were a lot of things going on in her life, relational things, both with a boyfriend and with the the family at home and their feelings about the relationship and the friends' feelings about the relationship, which we, we come back to that teenagers, a lot of things in life are relational. And we have to keep that in mind and pay attention to those relationships. Because in this case, I would argue that perhaps that conflict related may have been what was at that breaking point, what caused um, the student to be at the breaking point. At the time, you know, the parents had thought, you know, maybe this was a cry out for attention. And do teenagers cry out for attention? Absolutely. That's a normal thing. And a lot of times we're, we're faced with, is this attention seeking or is there really a mental health issue? And it's a really hard thing as a parent to know. And, and I believe that this student's parents were at that crossroad. You know, how do we respond to this? Is it just attention or is there something deeper? And I'm sure, just as anybody else who has dealt with this situation, they, they feel guilt for not questioning that further. Unfortunately, that student did end her life. And there's belief that perhaps that moment was impulse. And it was impulse because of everything that built up and that relational conflict. And perhaps there was a mental health concern that was never addressed. I remember talking to one young person who was in a relational war, lots of drama, and nothing that I said could diminish the drama that this child was experiencing. And I remember fearing that he or she might do something impulsively and saying, listen, as a teenager, you're going to feel this kind of, of stuff a lot. Just hold on. It will pass. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost as though parents want to say, if I could just hold on to them until they reach 25, you know, getting past all that emotional drama and the impulsiveness of youth. Uh, and, and I'm sure of every age, but it seems like more with youth, um, the tragedy of that, just that moment of making a decision that traumatizes so many people. It's very, very heartbreaking. I've said, and you've probably heard it said many times, that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it's that point that is so important, and yet it's hard to convey that to somebody that's not in that mindset. And I think I just want to piggyback a little bit on what Lindsay said about that whole issue of attention-seeking. I sometimes see it as an element of of denial, I think, that we're just kind of burying it under the rug, subconsciously maybe burying something under the rug. But a lot of parents do say that, oh, I think they're just crying out for attention. And, and what I say to that is those two things are not mutually exclusive, suicide, suicidal thoughts and crying out for attention. Remember that, that element of ambivalence for that period of time. There is probably some of those cases. There are, we know there are a lot of cases where, where kids are saying, I'm hurting here. You know, does anybody care that I'm hurting? And they're sort of lobbing some subtleties out, hoping that somebody grabs onto it and really does ask those important questions. Just really shows that they care. I'm speaking for the teenager, and I'm telling you, I've already tried 
I've talked to, I've tried to let my parents know they're ignoring me. I've talked to my friends. They think I'm just a drama queen. So I'm really ready to just throw in the towel. Where else can I go? There are professionals out there that can help you that have... I'm just a teenager. So I'm here for you. Tell me more about your pain. Tell me about the difficulties that you're, you're struggling with. I'm here right now, and I care about you. I can't imagine what you're feeling right now. And I can, but I can imagine that it feels really lonely. And I don't want you to feel lonely anymore. And I want you to know that there are people listening, and there are the people that want to help. And I don't want you to feel that way anymore. So I want to help you get to the point where you can get the right resources and you can be connected to the right resources to make sure that you don't feel that way anymore. So I want to add to what you just heard, teenager, who is listening and you think it's just an accident that you're sitting in the car with your parents or you're hearing this um, broadcast and you can't believe how it uh, it's impacting you. There are hotlines you can call. You can go to your school and talk to your school counselor. If you are in a church, you can talk to your pastor or talk to your youth pastor or a youth leader. There are people out there who love you. This is not the end for you. And it's not a mistake that you're listening to this message right now of help and hope. You can contact us at Mark Inc. Ministries. Visit our website at markinc.org. But don't take any steps that are a permanent solution to a temporary crisis. Your crisis is real, but there's a different solution that we want to offer to you. I think teaching kids that pain is a part of life, teaching them how to tolerate pain. There are some adults that I work with that get to a point where they you know, really say they've had a pretty a pretty easy life. Things really haven't been difficult, and then something whams them in, in adulthood, and it really throws them for a loop. But teens sometimes don't have that tolerance for pain that I think is really important. You can do that as you parent and as you teach them about that. Teach them that it's not really all about them. Teens are so, and kids are so egocentric, and they feel that everything is about them and the world revolves around them. How many times do we say that about kids? So that part of parenting is really important. So when they're having hard times, first of all, let them have hard times. Don't always feel like you have to scoop in and rescue them from from life. So there's subtleties, but it, it all does speak, too, to just being able to have that good relationship and really be able to shepherd their heart well. I think as parents, we also help provide them with outlets for that pain, you know, allowing them to become involved in things, giving them other resources, whether it's a church or a community organization, other people in their lives, aside from their peers and aside from just us as as parents and as their family, whether we're getting them involved in sports or a volunteer activity. Having outlets for teens is really big because then they have other places to pour that energy. I'd also like to add that as parents, one of the best things we can do is teach our children that we have control over things. And a lot of times teenagers look at the world happening around them and they they think that the world has control over them and they have no control. And this is that huge part where teens, they go through this point 
between 14 and 18 where they want to be 18 because they want control over all their decisions. They don't want anybody telling them where they can go and when they can go there. And that's because they see the world controlling them and they they don't really sense where their control is. So we as parents need to show them that. You know, and we go back to that case of cyberbullying. Teaching your teenager that no, they can't control what people say, but they can control how they're going to let it define them. And they can control whether they're going to log into Facebook that night, whether they're going to log on to fa- into Instagram and see those pictures. They have control over that. And so I think it's really important that we emphasize the control they have because then innately they're going to realize that they have control over the choice they make when it comes to mental health and their own well-being. Along the lines of the activities, to take it almost a step further, it would be great if some of those activities would involve helping other people and allowing them to get outside of their own pain and seeing that pain of others. So these are really important aspects of parenting that are, we we have other reasons why we think that's a good thing to do, but it's amazing how good that can be just for their overall mental health too. It's very proactive. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about the practical things that we can do as far as helping our kids with suicide, equipping parents, but we haven't really talked about the importance of faith in this journey. Would either of you like to address that? Yeah, I think that's for those teens that do have even a small amount of faith, I think it's hugely important. Because if you think about suicidal thoughts, the common elements there are, I'm all alone, and nobody knows how I feel. And those two things are things that Christ, God, can absolutely contradict, right? God, Jesus, knows how that feels. He has some connection to that and the pain that you're in. And he's always there. So I think for those teens that are struggling, if I know that they have have a faith background of any kind, I think it absolutely needs to be part of the conversation and certainly something that God can use. I mean, certainly we speculate, but we don't really know all the reasons why God allows suffering, right? But one of those things is that I think we can say pretty confidently that it draws us closer to him. And so I do see a suicidal period really drawing people to Christ um, as it ought to. So if we can be that person to point them in that direction, it's, it's a very important topic that shouldn't be avoided in the conversation. I think Heidi said it really well. Something I would add is the power of prayer as well. In my profession, I find myself a lot of times at the end of the day taking the situations that are heavy on my heart and just praying and asking for God's guidance in the next day and how I'm going to handle that situation. And I think as parents, sometimes we have to recognize that we don't we don't know what to say right away. We don't have the answers. So we need to look to him for the guidance in what to say, and he'll give it to you. You know, he knows your heart and he knows your care for your child. And through prayer and, and asking for that guidance and really believing that he is going to lead you there, you know, having that openness. Well, God majors in redeeming pain. We know that because of the pain that he went through and how that redemption has now been offered to us because of his pain. And so he can turn the tables here and he can take your pain, whatever it is, filter it through his hands, redeem that pain and put you into a place where you can turn around and help someone else who is experiencing the very same thoughts you are. And we know that our God is sovereign and that you can trust him. 
And and one more thing as we're closing is that you mentioned the, the God's presence and that Jesus is the prom. What the what was his last word? I will be with you. And all through Scripture, that's the the mother promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can trace it all the way through. And every time somebody was in trouble, what did he say? Fear not. I'm with you. And speaking of my own grief and and feeling as though life wasn't worth living, that was the promise that would get me through the darkest days is he's not going to explain anything to me. <laughs> he's not going to tell me what the next step is or what the next plan is or the purpose of all of this. But what is he saying? I am with you. And that's where you must trust me. And for those who are listening, I would say sometimes that's all we have is, okay, he's here with me. And then through prayer, Lindsay, as you had said, just crying out to him, Lord, I don't know what to do, so my eyes are fixed on you. Show me what to do. And he'll use scripture, or he'll use an interview like this, or he'll use a friend, someone who has no idea that if we are praying and sensitive to that, and we're on the alert, that he's going to direct our steps. So as parents, pray that prayer, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. The greatest command in Scripture, given 365 times, one for each day, is fear not. Fear not. Well, first of all, I want to thank you both for being a part of this interview and for your willingness to come and talk about such a sensitive topic. And it's not by chance or fate or mistake that you're here talking to someone who's sitting out there listening to this resource right now. You might be a mom or a dad who is concerned about where your child is emotionally, what they're struggling with, and whether or not there is a suicidal tendency in them. Or you might be a teenager who is looking at your life and wondering whether or not your life is worth it. You might be struggling with your self-image as to who you are. I want to encourage you that you're not listening to this either by chance or fate or mistake. You are here because God has ordained for you to be a part of this resource. We believe at Marking Ministries that God is sovereign and that you can trust him, which means that he reigns over all things, that nothing happens to you that isn't first filtered through his hands for a purpose. Your identity cannot be wrapped up in what people think of you, what success you may or may not have achieved, your financial status, your sports abilities, or anything like that. Your identity must be wrapped up in how God created you in his own image and likeness. And God has loved you with an everlasting love, so much so to prove his love for you that he sent his son to die on a cross for your sins and mine, for your struggles and mine. And the word of God teaches us where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Coming unto him means that you yield your heart to him. You ask him to be your, your source of strength and courage and empowerment. There's only so much other people can do to help you. There's only so much that some counselor or some school counselor or a pastor or a friend or even your parents can do to help you. There's only so far they can go. And then you have to make certain choices. You have to make certain you have to have the wisdom to make certain decisions. And if you are focused on the fact that God has loved you as no other has ever loved you, 
or ever will love you, then you can find your true identity in Him. And we at Mark Inc. Ministries exist for that purpose, to offer help and hope to hurting people. Right now you're hurting, and we are here to provide this resource. And if there's anything we can possibly do to point you to what salvation in Christ is all about, we exist for that purpose. You can contact us at markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, or you can call us at 877-MARK-INC, and we would be more than happy to reach out to you to perhaps put you in touch with someone who can help you maybe in your area. We will do our very best to try to provide you with the help that you need. But for now, please focus on the fact that God is in control He makes no mistakes. He made no mistake when he created you. And he created you in his own image, in his own likeness, for a purpose. He has a purpose for your life that maybe you haven't discovered yet. But I trust that as you come to him, you will learn what it means to truly love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Thank you for listening. May God richly bless you.